0: Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Um, Before we get started, just a couple quick housekeeping notes. Uh, Actually, a a shameless plug, if I may, for uh, the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Uh, This is a resource that comes out every four years, and it actually, the the latest version just came out about a month ago. We delivered them to all congressional offices, but if you didn't get a copy or you have a colleague that's been stealing yours off your desk, feel free to let me know. I'd be happy to get you another one. It's also available on our website, Cato.org. If you're not familiar with the Handbook for Policymakers, essentially it's an it's a, a to Z guide for pretty much all the issues that you deal with here on Capitol Hill, ranging from um, tax competition, the subject of today's event, to Social Security, uh, uh, foreign policy, civil liberties, you name it, and it's in the, the Handbook for Policymakers. So, a great resource to keep on your desk as you're uh, sifting through new issues uh, in your job here on the Hill. Um, with that, I'll go ahead and introduce our, uh, our first speaker for today. Uh, Dr. Dan Mitchell is an expert on tax reform and su- supply-side tax policy. Uh, he's one of the foremost advocates for the flat tax, and in fact, he might be the only person in the world who can name every country uh, off the top of his head that currently has a flat tax. Um, it's a great party trick for him. Um, Prior to joining the Cato Institute, he was a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He also worked on Capitol Hill as an economist for, this, uh, for Senator Bob Packwood and the Senate Finance Committee. He holds bachelor's and master's degrees in economics from the University of Georgia and a Ph.D. in economics from George Mason, George Mason University. Is that Dan Mitchell.
1: Well, thank you, Brandon. Yeah, there are 27 flat tax jurisdictions. I don't know that I can name all 27 right off the bat, especially since some of them are little places like Prid which is a breakaway region of of Moldova, and only Russia recognizes them, so some people say I can't count them, but I do. Uh, I want to go ahead and walk real quickly through some of the reasons why tax havens are something that should be applauded, not persecuted. And this puts me square against... Uh, what we see throughout the world today with international bureaucracies and politicians from high-tax nations uh, launching a very coordinated attack against these jurisdictions. Uh, In effect, what's happening is that the high-tax nations of the world want to set up something equivalent to OPEC, but instead of an OPEC to keep energy prices high on the behalf of oil-producing countries, what we're seeing is an effort by high-tax nations to create a cartel that will enable the politicians from those high tax nations to put in place uh, worse tax policy. And what I'm going to do is I have a a PowerPoint presentation, but I'm just going to walk through that really quickly, have material up on the screen for you to look at uh, to augment what I'm trying to say. But the key thing I want to start with is to first highlight what is good tax policy. Because this is something that virtually everyone agrees with, not everyone. But by and large, even if you go to a left wing economist and you say, is it better for the economy to have lower tax rates or higher tax rates? They'll say lower and they'll say, but you know, maybe for fairness they have to be high. But from an economic perspective, They'll agree that lower tax rates are better than higher tax rates, and even liberal economists will agree that you want less double taxation of savings and investment, not more. So there is this widespread agreement about what is good tax policy. Now, the problem is, is that the problem is is that politicians, for the most part, don't like good tax policy, because how do politicians win election? How do they reward contributors? How do they steer money to their supporters? They do it by imposing high tax rates and then using the money to divvy up among those that are on their side. And so politicians don't like the notion of not being able to have high tax rates, especially since sometimes politically they see it as in their interest to impose high tax rates. Uh, Ironically, I remember talking to a very senior economist at Harvard University, who was vaguely free market, and he told me that he had done an informal poll of his colleagues who were more on the left. And he said, if you knew for a fact that lower tax rates would generate more revenue that you could then spend on social programs, would you favor lower tax rates? And he said a majority of them actually said no, because the sort of punitive punitive, ideological uh, motivation to punish success was even more important than getting more money for them to redistribute. So the issue is a little bit confusing uh, in terms of what the politicians are really trying to maximize. But what's interesting is even though politicians want high tax rates, what have we seen around the world in recent years? We have seen dramatic reductions in tax rates. We have 27 flat tax nations. Uh, Top personal income tax rates in the industrialized world have fallen from an average of nearly 68% down to closer to 40%. Corporate tax rates, if you go back to 1980, they used to average about 48%, now they're under 27%. Nations all across the world have eliminated death taxes, they've eliminated wealth taxes, they've put in lower tax rates on capital income. We've seen all these positive changes, even though politicians normally have this spiteful incentive to impose high tax rates. Why are we seeing these good changes? We're seeing these good changes only because of tax competition. In other words, the simple way to think about it is imagine you're back in your economics 101 class in college and you learned about monopolies and oligopolies and cartels and competition. And you learned that if you had some sort of monopoly or oligopoly and say you only had one gas station in a town, that one gas station could charge high prices, it could maintain inconvenient hours, it could offer shoddy service. But if you have five gas stations in a town, all of a sudden, those gas stations compete with each other. They have to lower prices. They have to be attentive to the needs of consumers instead of being attentive to just imposing whatever price they want to impose. We've seen the same thing internationally in terms of what's happening with governments. Because of globalization, and and that's really the key. Uh, Well, let me get to that slide in a second. Because of globalization... What's happening is that labor and capital are a lot more mobile than they used to be, and this means that taxpayers around the world, if governments are trying to impose high tax rates, they actually have options to move either themselves or their money across borders, just like – if you have one monopoly gas station in a town and all of a sudden new gas stations open up, you can decide I'm no longer going to shop at that gas station that's trying to rip me off. I can shop at the gas station that's actually giving me a better deal for my money. Uh, and and this, this tax competition that's linked to globalization is responsible for these dramatic reductions in tax rates. Now, of course, when I go in for my salary review – I always say it's because of the great papers I'm writing for the Cato Institute that governments all over the world are doing these things. But the real story is tax competition is forcing governments to do the right thing even though politicians don't want to do the right thing. Now, the bad news is that the politicians have figured out what's going on, and they're fighting back, and this is why we're seeing all these international bureaucracies trying to come up with ways of attacking tax havens. Why are they trying to attack tax havens? Because tax havens are the most powerful instrument of this tax competition. It doesn't do you any good to move your money from, say, France to Hong Kong if the French government can still tax you track down that capital or track you down and tax you at French tax rates. That would sort of like be moving from the, the expensive gas station to the lower price gas station, but the high-priced gas station still gets to charge you. Yet that's exactly what high-tax governments want to do, is they want to track you and do extraterr- extraterritorial taxation. And what the OECD did is it put together an anti-tax haven blacklist back in 2000. Now, a little bit of detail, what defines a tax haven? The number one thing on the OECD's list, no or nominal taxes. So if you're a free market laissez-faire jurisdictions with a low tax burden, the OECD wants to punish you. There's no blacklist from the OECD of high tax countries, the countries that are actually punishing growth and impoverishing people with bad policy. No, there's only a blacklist of the jurisdictions that are doing the right thing. But it's not just the OECD. The European Commission has all sorts of various anti-tax competition, pro-tax harmonization schemes. The United Nations even has a crazy idea from something called the, Internet, the Committee of Experts on International Tax Matters. Of course, you can imagine the types of experts that they have on their committee. Uh, and then, of course, you now have the G20 summit. And this is really amazing. You know, sometimes even I, after 20 years in Washington, get surprised uh, by what the other side is doing. You have a financial crisis that is caused by bad policy in nations like the U.S., reckless monetary policy, corrupt Fannie and Freddie subsidies, you name it. There's no doubt about the fact that the financial crisis was born and bred in the big nations, and yet what are the politicians doing? It's the fault of the Cayman Islands. Or it's the fault of Singapore or Liechtenstein or something like that. And you say, well, wait, how can it be their fault? Did they have the reckless monetary policy? No. Did they have the corrupt Fannie and Freddie subsidies? No. But you've got to give the politicians from the high-tax nations credit. They're always on message. No matter what's wrong, it's always the fault of tax competition. And, of course, we now have all sorts of initiatives and efforts coming out of the U.S. Congress. Uh, The the Dorgan legislation, the Levin legislation, both of these bills were sponsored by uh, Senator Obama when he was in the Senate last year. Uh, So it does not look good. It looks like the U.S. will be engaging in unilateral fiscal protectionism, not just the international fiscal protectionism from the bureaucracies like the OECD and the European Commission. And, by the way, I can't resist pointing out the irony of something. If you work for the OECD, where you get very nice, generous salaries, you work in this elaborate chateau over in Paris, guess what? By international treaty, you pay no tax. So it's kind of ironic. We have these well-fed bureaucrats working at the OECD in their nice chateau with its own private wine cellar, and they run around the world in business class telling jurisdictions with low taxes that they're doing something wrong and they should be blacklisted, and yet these bureaucrats pay zero tax. Certainly, at the very least, the first thing that should happen is they should learn what it's like to be a taxpayer before they start interfering with the sovereign right of jurisdictions to set up their own tax policy. As I mentioned before, this battle exists because of globalization. 30 years ago, when very few people could move money or themselves across national borders, governments could behave like monopolists because their taxpayers were trapped. But because of globalization, not only has globalization meant wonderful things in terms of expanded trade of goods and services, it's also meant wonderful things in terms of competitive pressure on governments, which of course is why governments are fighting against it. Here's just a chart showing what's happened to top OECD nation tax rates. Uh, I was too lazy to make a chart, but this shows what's happened to corporate tax rates, except I haven't updated it since last year, it's now less than 27 percent. Here's the number of flat tax nations. Now what's interesting, if you read the OECD and European Commission documents, if you read some of the left-wing tax law professors from the United States who are consultants to the OECD, if you read what they write, they say tax competition is harmful, but at no point whether it's in the academic articles, whether it's in the OECD documents, at no point is there ever even the slightest effort to identify what is harmful about tax competition. And I think there's a good reason for that. How can competition be harmful? The only way competition is harmful is if you're a monopolist or an oligopolist and you don't like when there are competitors that are threatening your secure little position in life. And, of course, that's exactly what's happening in terms of the OECD and other efforts to try to stamp out uh, low tax jurisdictions. Now, some of you may be saying, well, who are you? You're just some nerdy policy wonk at the Cato Institute. So let's do a little bit of what's called appealing to authority here. Here are some of the various Nobel Prize winners who have looked at this issue. Uh, over the years. I'm not going to bother reading the quotes out. I guess we can easily send these uh, the PowerPoint to anybody who's here, or you can just come up and give me your card. I'll send it to you. But we have Stigler, we have Becker, we have Buchanan, we have Friedman, uh, we have Vernon Smith, we have Edward Prescott, we have Edmund Phelps. One Nobel laureate after another, they all recognize, of course, cartels are a bad idea. And if it's a bad idea for there to be cartels in the private sector, it's a horrible idea to have cartels among governments. And yet that is what the OECD, what the European Commission, and what the various politicians from high-tax nations are trying to do. You could even go back uh, to, and look at what the OECD economists have written. The OECD is sort of a multi-headed beast. The, the division that's doing the anti-tax competition campaign is the Committee on Fiscal Affairs, what is the Committee on Fiscal Affairs? It's a representative of the tax police from every member of nation. So imagine if you take the IRS from the U.S., Inland Revenue from the U.K., the various other tax police, put them in a room, and say you can remake the world according to your fantasies. What would you like it to be? Well, of course you're going to get a crazy ideas, and that's exactly what this Committee on Fiscal Affairs came up with. But if you actually look at what the Economist who work for the General Secretariat at the OECD have written, and you'll find that they identify specifically that tax competition is a way of limiting the tendency of governments to tax and spend excessively. And it's really interesting that if you look at the lower quote, the OECD points out that the problem with tax evasion is high tax rates. It's not low tax rates in the low tax jurisdictions. It's high tax rates in the high tax jurisdictions. That's what this issue is all about. Because there's no question when you listen to the politicians, what do they always say? We're trying to stamp out tax evasion. Well, all the academic evidence out there says one thing. Tax evasion and tax avoidance, for that matter, are linked to one variable, tax rates. So maybe even if you, you uh, do what the German finance minister said and send troops in to the low-tax jurisdictions, maybe you can shut them all down. It's amazing how those Germans always revert to forum. Uh, you can send troops in. You can shut down all the low-tax jurisdictions. It's not going to affect tax compliance so long as tax rates are high, especially when you factor in that if you shut down the tax havens, what's going to happen? We're going to see tax rates go back up to the levels of the 60s and the 70s. And that's going to be crippling to the global economy. Uh, So if you really want to have better tax compliance, the whole key is to have lower tax rates and tax reform. In other words, we have a totalitarian, oppressive, anti-growth, impoverishing way to try to reduce tax evasion. And oh, by the way, that won't work, according to all the academic evidence. Or you have a pro-growth, pro-freedom way that respects national sovereignty of other jurisdictions way of dealing with tax evasion. And that's lowering tax rates. And of course, unfortunately, the politicians uh, choose the wrong approach. I want to talk real quickly about the moral component to this, because it's not just an economic issue. The majority of the world's population still lives in jurisdictions where your fundamental human rights are not respected. And whether it's because you're a political dissident in some place like Russia, whether it's because you're an ethnic minority, like an ethnic Chinese in some place like the Indonesia or the Philippines, whether it's that the fact that you live in a totalitarian state, such as Hugo Chavez's Venezuela, whether it's because you have a family in Mexico, and uh, if you file your taxes, honestly, uh, corrupt people inside the tax authority will sell it to kidnapping gangs, and you get one of your kids' fingers in the mail. There are all sorts of people all over the world who have a fundamental human rights need and interest in protecting their financial privacy, and yet what's going to happen if you have the OECD and European Commission succeed? You're going to put people at risk, not at risk of higher tax rates. Um, I think that's bad, as I talked about before. You're talking about putting people at fundamental risk of their lives uh, if you wind up letting corrupt and incompetent governments get a hold of their personal information. And again, we don't understand that very well because we live in a jurisdiction where we might complain about government policy, but at least we have the rule of law Imagine if you live in China or Russia or Latin America or Africa or much of Asia. You don't have those rights and freedoms, and your very life can be in danger if the OECD succeeds. In other words, tax havens are a refuge for people who need financial privacy to protect themselves. It's worth noting that the Swiss financial privacy laws were actually strengthened and codified back in the 1930s to help protect the German Jews who were hiding their money from the Gestapo. Uh, And what's interesting about this, and I'll go ahead and close on these two points here, is that even the people on the other side admit this. Jeffrey Owens, who's the head tax-free bureaucrat at the OECD pushing the anti-tax competition campaign, he admitted to the U.K. Observer that tax havens are essential for individuals who live in unstable regimes. Joe Gutentag, who was international tax counsel under Clinton, admitted the same thing. He he admitted, talking about the dangers uh, to your children and to individuals of too much information sharing with governments. And even the United Nations, in a 1998 report that was designed to attack low-tax jurisdictions, the United Nations admitted that governments are the ones that spy on people and take away their freedoms. Let me go ahead and close by just throwing this Adam Smith quote up on the screen. Two-part quote, it's a long quote, but if you don't believe me, if you don't believe the recent Nobel Prize winners, let's go back to the very father uh, of economics, Adam Smith. Again, I'm not going to read it out. I'm just going to put it up on screen. It's actually a two-part quote. But what Adam Smith recognized way back in 1776, what Nobel Prize winners recognize today, what even left-wing economists recognize in terms of the beneficial impact of lower tax rates, and what human rights advocates recognize as the importance of financial privacy, these are all things that are under threat. The OECD, the European Commission, and greedy domestic politicians from the United States and elsewhere succeed. And by the way, I'll go ahead and close by making one simple uh, additional comment. If you look at the OECD's definition of what is a tax haven, you'll find something very interesting. The United States is a tax haven. If you're a non-resident alien and you invest in the United States, there is no tax on your interest or capital gains. Why? Because we want to attract capital to the U.S. economy. But if we get in bed with the French and the Germans and start pushing for policies of a global tax cartel, what's going to happen? We're going to be under pressure to put these bad policies in ourselves. Now it's never a good idea to drive capital out of your economy, but to drive capital out of your economy when your financial markets are very weak is borderline insane. And it's not just our federal rules in terms of taxation of interest and capital gains for non-resident aliens. It's also the fact that many states such as Delaware and Nevada and others have very attractive policies in terms of their corporate structures that make them one of the favorite tax planning vehicles of international investors. That will be at threat uh, as well. And uh, and so what's ironic about this whole situation is that the OECD, which is sort of the rich man's club of industrialized nation, is launching this anti-tax haven jihad. But when they put together their blacklist, what did they omit to do? They omitted any blacklist of their own members. So the United States wasn't on the blacklist. The United Kingdom wasn't on the blacklist. The Netherlands, Austria, Switzerland, Luxembourg, they all somehow wound up not being on the blacklist. So not only is the OECD pushing bad tax policy. Not only is the OECD undermining human rights around the world, but they're also a bunch of racist hypocrites. If you're in the member, if you're a part of the club, then you get a get out of jail free card. But if you're some poor developing smaller jurisdiction without much power, then you get put on the blacklist. This whole thing is economically and morally reprehensible. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks, Dan. Uh, to hear more of Dan's thoughts on tax competition, you can also check out his new book, Global Tax Revolution, which was published by the Cato Institute just a couple months ago. Uh, and as he offered, uh, I'm sure he'd be happy to send you his PowerPoint presentation if you'd like to check that out. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Richard Ron. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, chairman of the Institute for Global Economic Growth, and the chairman of the advisory board of the European Center for Economic Growth. He also previously served two terms as a member of the Board of Directors of the newly independent Cayman Islands Monetary Authority. Uh, he also previously served as Vice President and Chief Economist of the, I'm sorry, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Dr. Ron owned, uh, earned a B.A. in Economics from the University of South Florida and an N.B.A. From, from Florida State University. He also holds a Ph.D. from Columbia. Dr. Ron?
2: One always makes a mistake when, um, I shouldn't know this, a following Dan because we usually agreed how we're going to divide the thing up, and he goes first and he takes everything. (coughs) (laughs) And he's a little bit like these governments. And so you have to watch out for this monopolistic uh, behavior by him. Um, How many of you lost money with Bernie Madoff? Nobody. Well, that's good. Have you noticed that Bernie Madoff ran his fund out of New York rather than Cayman or Switzerland? Have you noticed that most of these other Ponzi schemes and these big financial scandals have been out of New York, London, but not out of the so-called tax havens? Why is that? Well, actually, Cayman is better regulated than are the U.S. financial markets. Uh, Cayman is a small place, only 50,000 people. The monetary authority there, which I served on the board for two terms, only has about 120 staff. Tiny compared to we have here the SEC and the Fed and the Office of Thrift Supervision, and a controller of the currency, and goes on and on and on with all our regulatory agencies. But they don't get to the fundamentals. In Cayman, we knew that we could not afford these enormous staffs. So therefore, we had to figure out where the risks really lie and what to do about them. Bernie Madoff, as you may know, had a friend as an accountant. Do you know this fellow next to you? You do? <clears throat> Would you like to have me as your accountant if you were going to run a Ponzi scheme? <coughs> <coughs> well, the thing is, Bernie Madoff had a, a close friend. I think he might have even been a relative or some kind of family connection. But that wouldn't be allowed in Cayman because there you need An independent auditor. And an independent auditor has to be approved by the monetary authority. Because we realize that regulators don't understand what happens in companies. I mean, one of the companies we regulated was Citibank. We had no idea what was going on in Citibank. It it also appears that their executives had no idea what was going on in Citibank. But we weren't under the illusion that we could really understand in detail what they were doing. But their accountants have that fiduciary responsibility. And if you have an independent accounting firms, they're supposed to certify that the books are properly done in accordance with the law. Also, for let's say like funds, Cayman has more funds than any other place in the world, about 10,000 mutual and hedge funds. Now, again, the regulators in Cayman have no illusion they can know what's going on in the hedge funds. But they do rely on the accountants, and they insist upon independent accountants. They also insist upon having the monies separated from the client accounts to the managers and having appropriate licensed uh, managers for these funds. And that is where your really control is. Bernie Madoff commingled his monies with his clients Nobody checked. This is, and I just made off just one example. We do the regulation all wrong here in the U.S. We could do it for a fraction of the cost and actually provide much better regulation. If I had to start over again, I would abolish much of the SEC and the Fed because what they do, much of what they do, is totally counterproductive, unnecessary, and doesn't get to the heart of the problems of what we need. Uh, You should have gotten a copy of this article I had in the Wall Street Journal this past week in defense of tax havens. And if you don't, uh, some of the Cato people here should be able to get that for you. Um, Now, Dan gives a very good presentation. Some of you thought he might have spoken a little fast, which he's known to do, and you probably couldn't get all the notes down. Much of it is in my article, so you can get that summary. But actually, there is an extremely good video um, that's done by the Center for Freedom and Prosperity. Andy, why don't you put up your hand back there. Andy Quinlan runs that. And on their website, www.freedomandprosperity.org, you can get Dan's video on this and a number of other topics. And there's a new video coming out from Peter Wallison. Peter had been the general counsel of the Treasury and the Reagan Administration and counsel to President Reagan and he's just done an excellent video on much of the financial crisis also but if you look at several videos Dan has done and the new one from Peter it's a it's a quick way of reviewing all this and getting the facts uh, plus the the articles that we do have on it. Um, This Dan touched on the moral component excuse me. Um, I have worked and many countries around the world. We know that from, um, well, Freedom International, for instance, lists 46 countries which are unfree. I think there's about another 60 which are partially free. And it's only a minority of countries which really are both free and have uh, independent courts without much corruption. And it's pretty well limited to the northern European countries, the Scandinavians, um, uh, Germany, Netherlands, Britain, um, (laughs) Switzerland, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, U.S., a few other countries around the world. You get outside of that and you begin to have real problems um, with massive corruption in courts, massive corruption in the governments, And if you happen to be a, uh, have some wealth and you live in a number of Latin American countries or African countries or elsewhere, you're at risk. Your family's at risk for kidnappings. When you look at just what's happening in Mexico, um, these huge number of kidnappings we've had in northern Mexico in the, this, this past year, uh, where are these people going to put their money? If it is known that you are wealthy or just having moderate amounts of wealth, your family is at risk by kidnappers, extortionists, government thugs, uh, drug dealers, and other sorts. And part of having a civilized global society is making sure that we have places on the planet where honest people who have worked hard can protect themselves, the right of self-defense, is about the most basic human right of all. And you have a right to protect your property against the criminal elements, and often the criminal elements are governments. Um, Those of you who have not experienced some of the places that I have lived and worked, uh, you know, you may say, well, it's hard to believe. But you get off in these places, and you see how corrupt they can be. Years ago, I had chaired the Bulgarian Economic Transition Team in Bulgaria is basically a civilized place. It's growing nicely, but they've had massive court corruption. And back in 1990, I was extremely naive after I had chaired the transition project. We actually set up some joint ventures trying to teach them how capitalism would really operate. And we brought in a number of American companies, and I thought I was going to be protected against the mafia. I was well-known in Bulgaria. But even so, we had our windows broken, uh, all kinds of assorted threats, and some of our staff beat up with uh, threats of even more serious things. Bulgaria still has a problem with court corruption. It's getting better, but it's still there. And that's even in Europe. And I can pick out a number of other European countries who have somewhat similar problems. Then you go out to the rest of the world, and the problems are massive. And when people say, well, shut down these, the idea of Uh, Financial privacy, it is naive and it's dangerous, and we need to be more concerned about that. We focus on the economics. Also, people don't understand what offshore entities do. What do you think Cayman does? What happens in Cayman? Now, if you've read the John Grisham uh, 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 novels, and if you've watched TV programs like 24, you think there are people who have bags of money, like this gentleman here. It's like him taking his suitcase filled with cash and running down to Cayman. Now, let's say you actually did this. Fill up your suitcase tonight. You go down to Cayman because you want to hide your drug-dealing money. You get down there. What do you do? Well, you look around. There's a few banks. Say you go over to Cayman National Bank. You walk in. You got this bag full of money. And they're going to say, well, this is very nice. Who are you? Where did you get the money? Prove us where you got the money. Give us a whole lot of references. We're going to check you out in Interpol. Anyway, basically you're not going to be able to open an account. They're not going to accept it. And this is true with all the local Cayman banks. The big international banks that operate there, HSBC, um, Citibank, Bank America, all the rest of them, um, they don't take uh, retail accounts at all. You can't open a A bank account if you wanted there. Basically, that is all, um, that is repackaging money. There's a few perversities in U.S. law, the overnight accounts and so forth. But this is all institutional operation. What they do, let's say a bank like HSBC, one of the world's largest banks. It's got offices in Hong Kong, Shanghai, all through Europe, all through the U.S., And there's all these depositors. Maybe some of you have accounts at HSBC. So you've got $10,000 in your account. Now, HSBC wants to pay you interest on that account, so they have to earn money. Well, it's hard for them to invest just in $10,000 increments. So what they do, they gather up all this money, and it's sent to Cayman, where it's repackaged. And it's packaged into, let's say, amounts of $10 or $100 million dollars, Which are used to loan to companies to open new semiconductor plants in the United States or new shopping centers. Um, The money, you know, there's no physical transfer of money, of, of, of paper money. There's not a whole lot of dollar bills down there. This is all done electronically. And the back office work can be done any place on the planet where this is done. The reason they use places like Cayman, because it's a place you can consolidate without having any taxes or transactional nicks on it of money coming in and out and just leads to regulatory efficiency and better global resource allocation. If you did not have places like Cayman and Switzerland and the other places it do this, you would not have the proper or as good of allocation of capital around the planet to its highest and best use. That's what the banks do. Now about the funds. Why does Cayman have 10,000 funds? Well, again, it has to do with with regulatory efficiency, much more so than taxes. There's a lot of tax-free jurisdictions. But in a place like Cayman, you can go online. You can do virtually everything online. But there's a few key questions you have to answer. One is that anything you have in your offering prospectus, you actually have to do. I mean, you can't deviate outside of what you offer. You also have to have a board of what they call an officers a fit and proper, proper people. And um, for instance, if uh, Dan wanted to open a fund, the first thing would happen is his name, the Cayman authorities would run it through Interpol and all these other lists to see if he's a fit and proper person. Have you been indicted for financial fraud, for anything else? And <clears throat> that strikes out of A number of people right there. Then they want to know who is the accounting firm, who is going to be the custodian, who is going to be the funds manager. You can do all that electronically and do it within a couple weeks and actually have your funds set up, but unlike the SEC and a lot of the US regulatory authorities, there's a very clear-cut way to get there. The key questions to prevent uh, fraud and misuse are there. And there's not all this other type of nonsense that goes on without asking the basic questions. And finally, a place like Cayman has a huge number of insurance companies after Bermuda. Why do these insurance companies go offshore? Most of it is what they call captive insurance. Let's say a big company like IBM probably wants to self-insure. They know they manage their business well. They keep the risk low, so they set up their own private insurance company. This is commonly done or industry groups will set up insurance companies or um, or university hospitals and so forth. Harvard University has all their medical insurance in Cayman as most US university hospitals do. Why? Because it's an efficient regulatory structure to have these captive insurance. Cayman's big competition there is not with other uh, low tax jurisdictions it's places like Vermont, South Carolina, Delaware, Nevada, which also had very ag- aggressive uh, promotion of captive insurance. So people really don't understand what they do of the legitimate offshores. There are some offshores who have tried to cater to the criminal class. Um, Antigua has been in that in the news recently. And I'm not saying they were actually catering to criminal class, but they weren't discouraging it. And so forth. you did get a number of shady characters there. But I can assure you, if you're an American and you want to put your money in Cayman to avoid taxes, that is not smart. Because virtually all these, like again, the big offshores, when we talk about offshores, it's really the low-tax jurisdictions. Like, again, uh, Cayman and Bermuda and Jersey and uh, Switzerland and so forth, they have... Uh, tax information sharing agreements with the U.S. in major countries and um, or some, sometimes withholding agreements so if you're a criminal it's not a good place to put your money the trouble is as with these new proposals in the Congress as you make it more costly to operate in the illegitimate offshore low tax jurisdictions then a lot of people say they're not going to put up with this and they'll move their money to some of the Asian jurisdictions, which don't report, and then the money really is hidden. And actually, we reduce effective tax and law enforcement by forcing people to go um, to places which are not as well, well regulated as Switzerland or Cayman or the others because the cost burdens have become too high.